Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. The only word I can think of to describe this week's guest is wise. Well, there are other words, fabulous and noble for starters, but wise is the biggie. Best-selling author Isabel Allende has written 25 books, including her debut, the global smash hit The House of the Spirits, published when she was 39, and two memoirs, one about the death of her daughter, Paola. In her latest, The Soul of a Woman, the 79-year-old Chilean, who has been in self-imposed exile since 1975, takes a candid look at her own life, sexuality, and her evolution as a feminist. What, she asks, and tries to answer, do women want? Look what we have done in a century, since the first suffragettes to today. We've done a lot. Over the next 40 minutes, Isabel explains why she's been a feminist since she was five and what feminism means to her, being fatally heterosexual and why she's spent her life in training to be a passionate old woman. I defy you not to want to be Isabel Allende when you grow up by the end of this podcast. Oh, well, thank you for talking to me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. The Soul of a Woman is wonderful. Thank Thank you for writing it. I loved it. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. You write that you've been a feminist since you were five years old. <laughs> yes. Well, without a name, I just had the anger. And uh, that was like the, the seed of what later became feminism. But I was very aware that my mother's situation was way worse than any male in the family. And I was aware of that very young. First, because I was a very sensitive kid. I was the only girl very close to my mother. And also because I lived in a weird household. My father abandoned my mother with three babies. And my mother had to go back to live in my grandfather's house. 
and my grandfather lived with his bachelor sons. So it was a house, a house of uncles and a grandfather. And they had cars, they had salaries, they had power, they had freedom, money. My mother had nothing. My mother had been raised to be a senorita, somebody's wife and somebody's mother. And uh, she ended up alone with the babies and no money and no no, nothing. She lived because she was in her, her father's house. She was a charity case, really. And you could see the injustice of that as a small girl. Yeah. And I also saw how unjust the situation was of the maids in the house. It was a time when people had living maids in Chile. It's not like that anymore. But at the time, this was the 40s, a household like my grandfather would have two or three maids living in. And they lived in sort of cells in the back patio. They Mm. were poor, most of them illiterate. They had miserable salaries, probably. And I didn't know the details, but I knew that they were different from the family. There was a sort of invisible line that divided the front of the house where the family lived, and the back of the house, where the servants and the children and the pets lived. No, I'm I'm not kidding. It was like that. In terms of your mother, obviously she wasn't an equal in the house. So was she between the servants and your grandfather and uncle? She was part of the family, of course, but she had no resources of her own and no independence. Everything she had was given to her. And I remember that one of the mantras of my grandfather was that he who pays the bills gives the orders. And I always knew very young that I had to support myself if I wanted any kind of independence, because there is no feminism if someone is paying the bills for you. It's so rare that people talk about economic independence because that's what keeps so many women in in such difficult situations, isn't it? Well, the the whole point of the patriarchy is to keep women poor and pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, how are you going to control them? Yeah, exactly. Did you feel from a very young age, were you treated very differently from your brothers? Uh, First of all, I was smarter than my brothers. I was a very good student and a very good reader, but it was never an issue that I would go to college. My brothers had to go to college because they needed a profession. I needed to shut up and be nice because maybe I would be able to lure a husband. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't so explicit, but that was pretty much the, the message. You write that your mother thought something was wrong with you. Because I was so angry. And my anger wasn't explosive. I was not the kind of kid that threw tantrums. I was sullen and silent and drawn in. It was not because I was particularly shy or sensitive. I was just angry. And my mother realized that. She knew that. And so she thought that there was something wrong with me. But this is a time when there were no child psychologists. I've never heard of a child psychologist then in Chile. Probably there were some, but not in my family. And um, I think my mother was worried about me, worried because she saw me so unhappy. It's so interesting to me that you talk about feeling that anger from such a young age, because anger is so not encouraged in women, is it? Certainly not. That was the problem. If my brothers would have been angry, that would have been considered masculine and a good trait that would carry them forward. In a girl, it was pathological. Did you suppress that anger throughout your kind of girlhood and teenage or did you, you know, were you comfortable with it? No, I was very unhappy. My mother was right. I was a very unhappy child and a very not adjusted adolescent. In puberty, I was a mess and, um, and it didn't show too much because I didn't behave badly and I had good grades. 
And as long as I didn't make a fuss, they could live with me, even if I didn't talk. And then in, in adolescence, I was incredibly angry at everything. I've, at 15, I left the church. My family was Catholic because I couldn't stand the idea of male priests. I found it shocking that these guys had so much power. And so I, I left the, the church also because the idea of a male God bothered me. So all this, of course, my mother worried about all this. She had to. But then I got a boyfriend who later became my husband. And I have to mention it because that calmed me down. When I felt accepted by someone and uh, he, he never opposed any resistance to my feminism or my anger or my my energy. He was raised in British schools, by the way, in boarding British schools. And he had this self-control. So he never exploded and was very patient with me. And having him in my life was the first time that I felt accepted. And that changed a lot. Love changed a lot. I fell madly in love with him. And we were together for 29 years. Did you finding a partner and getting married and doing the the right thing for a girl, did that make life easier with your mother and with your grandfather as well? No, my mother never made it too difficult. She was just very scared. Uh, but getting married and having children was important because it, I became sort of normal in the eyes of the family, but also it gave me so much to have the children. Motherhood really changed me. I was ferociously protective of my children, but very happy to have them. I, I enjoyed them. I loved them. I, I thought they were extraordinary. And the fact that they had come from me was extraordinary. You write that you didn't particularly like being a woman. Not when I was young, but when I fell in love, when I had children, when I could focus this anger and give it a name, and say, okay, oh God, I'm a feminist. Wow. And I'm not a lunatic. And, <laughs> and, there, <laughs> and there is a movement out there called the Women's Lib. And there are women, millions of women who think like me, who feel like me, millions of women. And also there are women who are writing about this with an articulate language, an intelligent language, with humor often, and articulating what I feel. So that changed everything. Because it, it, it sort of said, okay, it's not that I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at this. And it had a name. It was called patriarchy. That was great. <laughs> that was so great. How old were you when you realized that you weren't alone? In my yeah. early 20s. It was probably around the time I got married. Because by the time I had my kids, I was already aware that I was not the lunatic I mentioned. And then I had the kids and a few years later, I was able to work as a journalist in a women's magazine that was a glossy magazine with fashion and models and whatever. But all the articles in the magazine, there was always a feminist touch, always. And the themes that we wrote about were things that people had never discussed openly in Chile, that women were not used to hear those things to talk about abortion, infidelity, virginity, exploitation, prostitution, all the grievances that women had at the time and still have, they had never been talked publicly. So the magazine was revolutionary in that sense. And I felt very happy because I could participate in that. We were only four very young women. And I felt that I was making history in a way, changing the culture. I felt so powerful. <laughs> and then everything end with, ended with a military coup in 24 hours. So that's how powerful we, we were. Did you feel at that time, though, that you could change things, that you were changing yes. things? Yes. You know, this happened 
so long ago in the 60s. And uh, in the late 60s, the first issue of the magazine was in 1967, in May, I remember. And um, now it's considered an iconic, a legendary publication in Chile. Very recently, the former director of the magazine, Delia Vergara, received the highest award for journalism in the country. Look how late. She's retired. She's been retired for centuries, but she's received it now because now people acknowledge what that magazine did. It opened the doors for everything else that came after regarding feminism. So it was very important. It just took them 50 years for it to be recognized. Yeah. And um, I don't think we were aware when we were doing it of how much impact it had. First of all, who can buy a glossy magazine? People who have enough resources to Mm -hmm. spare. So we thought that we reached a very small audience, but it wasn't that way at all because it had repercussions and it was it was used almost as a textbook among young girls and young women. It was a very important publication. So we had an impact. Well, that's why they closed the magazine when we... Yeah. The military coup could not stand the idea of feminism. Yeah, they wouldn't want to bring you down if you weren't causing any trouble. Of course. Was that the first time in your life that you discovered, like, the power of what a group of women can achieve? Yeah, but we didn't think it that way. It's now looking back that I see the power of those four young, impulsive, almost innocent women had. You know, you need time Mm. to reflect and to compare and experience to to see what happened, to see your own mistakes and to see the moment in history that you were able to do something. It is an incredible thing to have been part of. It must have been quite unusual for women with children to work at that point in Chile. No, we all had children. We all had children. The other three women were journalists. They had studied journalism. So in that sense, they were way more prepared than me. They knew how to write. They knew the craft. I knew nothing. And they all were married. They all had children. But you know what? We had maids at home that took care of the children. And I had my in-laws living next door. Without my mother-in-law, I would have not been able to do what I did. Without the maids in the house, without an adopted grandmother that took care of my children too. I would not be here talking to you without the help of the women in my life. And that started very early on. So interesting. You went into voluntary exile in 75. Were you in Venezuela the whole time until you wrote The House of Spirits? Mm -hmm. I was in Venezuela until 1987, at the end of 87, when I moved to the United States because I fell in lust with a guy. I ended up marrying the guy, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But I was living in Venezuela and I was on a book tour in the United States when I met Willie. You're quite a serial monogamist, aren't you? I have had my infidelities too. Don't think that I have been just a monogamist. (laughs) I was in love with my first husband for 20 years. And the last nine years, trying to fix a marriage that wasn't working. I was in love with my second husband for 20 years, and then eight years trying to fix it, and it didn't work. So now I'm married to Roger, and I keep telling him that he might not be my last husband. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he better behave. 20 more years, I'll be 98, so probably he is my last husband. (laughs) You might have had enough by then. Yeah. (laughs) When you split with Willie, did you think, oh, I'm done now? Or were you thinking, oh, 
Maybe there's another coming along. No, no, no. I thought it was done. I was 72, 73. And I thought, okay, it's done. So we lived in a large house. I sold the house. And I bought a small house with one bedroom where I was going to live with my dog. And that was it. But then Willie died and I inherited his dog. And so now I had two dogs and then Roger showed up. So now in this small house <laughs> with one bedroom, we all sleep in the same bed, the two dogs there, <laughs> and, and Roger and I, and we share the space somehow. And uh, the, the house was an attic, so I'm talking to you from the attic. Roger's lucky you made room. I mean, the dogs are important. <laughs> yeah, I have told it. Don't make me choose. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> I hope he's smarter than that. Um why didn't you just shack up with Roger? That was my intention. But he's a very formal person. It was all triggered by his granddaughter. His granddaughter at the time was seven, barely. She went to her school and talked to the librarian and said to the librarian, she's a funny kid, said, um, have you heard of Isabel Allende? And the librarian said, yes, I've read several of her books. And there was a pause. And then Anna said, she's sleeping with my grandfather. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so Roger thought <laughs> that this was not a good example for his grandchildren. And I think he really felt that getting married would be like a stronger commitment. When we talked about love, I, I would always add some sarcasm at the end. And uh, he didn't like that. When we met, three days later, he wanted to get married. So he was totally committed from the beginning. And it took me more than a year to accept the fact that the guy was really serious. And so when he came to live with me, we lived together for a while. And then he, he stopped talking about marriage. And one day, my son, who is the closest person in my life, Nico said, Mom, have you noticed that every time Roger mentions marriage, you answer with a Chilean sarcasm? How would you feel if it was the other way around, that you wanted to get married and he would have that attitude? How would you feel? He was right. And I said, well, I have nothing to lose, you know. So we got married and it's working beautifully in spite of the pandemic and the fact that we are locked in in this tiny place together for a prolonged honeymoon. I don't think we would have survived without the dogs, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true, because I often think, thank goodness I'm locked down with someone I like and Yes. Enjoy spending time with. But you can't even get away by going to a different room. Well, I come to the attic and the house, it's on a lagoon. So uh, not in winter, but in summer, there's the water, the kayak, the deck. We don't have much of a garden. It's tiny. But there is parks around and we need, live on the bay. It's, it's just lovely. No, we can't complain. And we have looked for a larger house to move. And then we think of the idea of moving is just too much work. No. No. Too much. Too much. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both, 
in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And you had a big purge of all your stuff, didn't you, at the end of your that was last marriage? That was so wonderful to give away everything. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I never was much of a collector. And because I have had to leave things behind more than once in my life, I'm not attached to stuff. I'm attached to my mother's letters and to a few photographs, but that's it. So I, I didn't mind at all leaving everything behind. And now that I have way, way, way less, I'm much happier. And still I have too much. Do so you feel like it's a lifting of emotional weight, the physical embodiment of emotional stuff? I don't know if it's a... No, I could live in a cell. No, I don't think it's emotional. I think it's uh, the knowledge that you can lose everything in, in a minute and it doesn't matter. Six months later, you don't remember what you lost. I'm talking material stuff. I'm not talking your country or your, your family, of course. No. And does that go for books and everything or...? Everything. Every 7th, January 7th, I fill up the car with all the books I have bought or I have been given, and I give them away every year. So I don't collect books either. Because I know that if I need to consult a book, if I need to read it again, I can I can get it. I don't need to have it. How many books have you written now? 24? I, I am on my 26 right now, writing my number 26. Do you have those? My books, yes, I do. Um, when you wrote House of Spirits, which was your debut, I mean, women writers are systematically ignored everywhere, but particularly in Latin America at that time, if they're published well, at all? At that time, it was the boom of Latin American literature, all male. There was not one woman in the movement, in the boom. So when I wrote The House of the Spirits, and it, it became a success in Europe, it was said that I was not part of the boom because I came at the end of the boom. So I was post-boom, whatever that means, but, <laughs> which is fine. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. And what happened is that in time, in the 40 years since then, the book industry realized that more women than men buy fiction and more women than men read fiction. And they like to read books written by other women. So it opened a floodgate for women writers. And in Latin America, there are now waves of young, excellent women writers. The problem with women writing is that, like everything else, the standard is a white male. So uh, when we talk of literature, we immediately think a white male automatically. And then you add an adjective. You say feminine literature, African-American literature, Asian literature, young adult literature. The moment you add an adjective, you diminish it because the standard is a white male. 
And that prevails still among critics and I would say professors of literature, but not so much anymore in the public. How long do you feel it took you to transcend that? A lifetime. I mean, uh, my agent said, be prepared. This was the first book, because you will have to do double or triple the effort of any man to get half the recognition. And it is true. It has taken me double the time to get half the recognition, especially in in my own country, in Chile. And uh, I have, after all this life and all these books and many, many awards, I do have the recognition that any man would have had 20 years before. And that's the way it is. And, and it will change, and it has been changing, but not in my generation. It's alarming, isn't it, really, the way that ambition and success in women is still frowned upon, even now, even in 2021. To a certain extent, yes, but I don't think it's so much so among younger generations. I, I don't think so. You know, when we saw yeah. Kamala Harris and Amanda Gorman, the, the poet, 23 years old. Amazing. And, and you see these voices, this, this power, this brilliance. <laughs> Who can say anything bad about that? And these are wonderful examples for young women. Do you feel you've learned from young women as, as you've got older? I learn all the time because they are now fighting for things I had never thought of 20 years ago. I remember Anita Hill when she denounced Clarice Thomas for sexual harassment in the workplace, the word sexual harassment didn't exist. It was taken for granted. It was normal that women would be harassed. Mm. And Anita Hill, with incredible courage, got up there in front of the Supreme Court and denounced it. And she was beaten down. And Biden was one of the worst. Everything seemed lost by her. And the next day, women had picked up the idea. And in a matter of few years, the idea of sexual harassment was not only had extended to the world, but there was legislature about it. I mean, it was forbidden in a way. It was unacceptable. It was denounceable. It could be punished. When Anita Hill came up and said that, it was a revelation for me. I said, mm-hmm. wow, I was harassing and I never thought it was not acceptable, until she came up and said it. So when you see the Me Too movement and women in the young women in the street dancing and singing and protesting and furious and happy and everything, they are teaching me every day something new that I hadn't thought about. So we are pushing history. What does feminism mean to you now? To, to me, it's a philosophical position in life. It's a way of seeing the world and of imagining the future. It is a struggle against a system of male dominance that prevails in every aspect of our lives for centuries, for millennia. And um, the final goal is to replace the patriarchy by a management of the world in which men and women share in equal numbers and with equal power the world, the administration of the world. And it is a future in which feminine and masculine values have the same weight. And this means that you have to empower women and girls constantly in every aspect of life. And that is what my foundation tries to do. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about your foundation. In two words, the foundation's mission is to invest in the power of women and girls. And we work in three areas. 
mostly because we have limited resources. Education, because an education includes giving them skills to work, because what we talked about, independence, economic independence, is so important to be able to support yourself and your kids. Protection against exploitation and discrimination, because there is a war against women and women have to realize that and be protected against it and protect each other. And control over their lives and their fertility and their bodies. We work also with reproductive rights, among other things. We don't invent anything. We work with organizations and projects or programs that already exist. So we just invest in those programs. You mentioned the inauguration and there was the wonderful moment with Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama and the kind of connection between them. How important do you think it is for women to keep supporting women? Essential. When they ask me, what is the one thing that you can recommend to young feminists? Be connected. Talk to each other. Don't be isolated. Think globally. Think even if you achieve a lot in this place, you have to achieve it for everybody. For as long as there is one woman sold into forced labor or prostitution or premature marriage, there's still much to be done. Can you foresee an end to patriarchy? Of course. I mean, it's kicking and screaming, isn't it, at the minute? No, of course, of course. Look what we have done in a century, since the first suffragettes to today. We've done a lot. That's true, and it's important to... Yeah, think of history. I mean, how long everything takes. And this is a revolution, and like all revolutions, you start with the anger at the injustice, at how unfair things are. That is the first thing that triggers the revolution. But you don't know where you're going. You don't have the skills. You don't have anything yet, just the anger. And then as you go day by day on this unknown path that is not even a road, you invent the revolution. And often it has backlashes and it stops and it seems that you've gone the wrong way and you have to correct the course. And there are crossroads and there are many moments in which you feel that everything is lost. But it is not. It is that kind of race in which you give a baton to somebody else and you don't let go of yours, but there's someone else that is also running with you. When they tell me, okay, are you going to pass your torch? No way. I'm going to other torches with mine, but I will have my torch until I die because every torch is needed. I'm not going to pass it. Are you kidding? That is such my a brilliant torch. analogy. My torch. <laughs> Get off my torch. You write so beautifully about ageing in the soul of a woman. How has the ageing process been for you? I mean, it's 30 years since you had menopause, is that right? Yeah, yeah, 30 years. Uh, How is it? Well, some things are not fun. I would much rather not have wrinkles, but I am healthy and I take care of myself. I, I exercise every day. I eat properly and I'm happy, which is really important. And when things go wrong, I try to lift myself up. So I have a good attitude, good health, resources, love, family, dogs, and my work, for God's sake. I have writing, which keeps me alive and curious and in the world. So aging for me has been particularly good. And also it has given me incredible freedom freedom of my own complexes, of my own limitations, of my own doubts. I am more sure of myself. I don't need to please everybody. 
just a very few people. I can be myself. I don't have to dress fashionably or I can do whatever I want and it's fine. I have um, way less anger. I am angry at the world, at the patriarchy and the way things are. But it's an intellectual anger that keeps me working, like this book that, that we're talking about. But it is not anger in my life. I'm not angry at, in my life. Even four years of Trump and a year of the pandemic didn't make me angry. I was going to ask you, actually, how did it feel? How did living through four years of Trump feel after everything you went through in Chile? Awful. But I know that I knew from the beginning it will pass. I was terrified that it would last four more years. No. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't think the, the country would have survived four more years. But even with four more years, everything passes. The dictatorship in Chile lasted 17 long years and they controlled everything. There was no free press. There was no Congress. There was no political parties, nothing. And yet it ended. It, it just collapsed. So I have lived long enough to know that everything changes. In the book, you talked about being in training for years to be a passionate old woman. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, I keep telling young people, you better train because old age is very difficult. It's not for sissies. And you have to train yourself as you train yourself to be healthy and eat properly and not, not smoke and all that. You train your character. Let go of grudges. Let go of bad sentiments, of, of the negativity. Don't talk about your illnesses. Don't whine. Don't complain. Because that's what old people do. They complain all the time that my knee, my her, my hip, no one is interested in how you feel. Just be out there, work, be of service, be active, be curious, have a purpose, engage, love, take risks. If you do that as a training, by the time you are old, you keep doing it. You mentioned in the book, it's so many women that I've spoken to have said the same thing, that you have a group of friends that you talk about setting up a community with when you're really old. <laughs> yeah, we, we talk about that all the time. I don't know why we haven't done it. It is the idea of the nunnery. In the Middle Ages, the only safe place really for a woman was a nunnery, the convent, because she was not exposed to an angry husband, to mobs, to kids, to illness. You wouldn't die of childbirth at 23. And this was a community of women who kept knowledge and faith and whatever. And it must have been extraordinary at the time. And so, although I couldn't be a nun because I am too sexual still, I wouldn't like to be celibate. I'm heterosexual, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the book, you described that as fatally heterosexual, which I fatally. thought was wonderful. It's much more comfortable if you have a great woman companion instead of three husbands. <laughs> <laughs> That's never been on the cards, though. No, not for me, unfortunately. But the idea of a community of women is beautiful. It's beautiful. At the soul of a woman, you kind of set out to ask and answer what do women want? How on earth would you manage to do that? Talking to women, working with women, being with women always, having the foundation. And I think that in the book, I sort of answer what women want. First of all, we want safety. We want to be safe. We don't want to live in fear. That's first. Us and our children, safe. We want to be heard, respected. We want love. And we want to live in a world that is more beautiful, kinder. We envision 
a world in which there is peace in the sense that not only peace in the world, no war, because we are the first victims of war and conflict, but where there is no violence in our lives, violence, domestic violence, violence of the system, violence of poverty. Poverty is a terrible form of violence. All those are the things that women want. We want a different world. Too right. Okay, the questions that I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? My emotional age, I would say it's um, 51. And that's the year after my daughter died. Because uh, the death of my daughter, the illness and the death of my daughter changed me and uh, forced me to grow up. I was an eternal teenager and that event made me a woman. Thank you. Um, What is the book that you would push on a friend, always push on people to read? My own books, of course. (laughs) You can't have your own books, that's cheating. (laughs) No, I don't have just one book because it depends on the friend and the circumstances. Sometimes you recommend a book because that person is going through something particularly hard. But good fiction is always recommendable. Can you pick a favourite of your own books? To recommend? Paula. Because of the feedback I get, I get hundreds of letters every day, but I would say that every week I have several messages about Paula because everybody has losses in their lives. So they connect to the book for whatever loss they might have. What advice would you give younger women? Talk to each other. Tell me an older woman who inspires you or has inspired you through your life. My mother inspired me. But right now, today, a woman called Olga Murray. She is 96 and I want to be like her. She created a a foundation called Nepalese Youth. Her name is Olga, M-U-R-R-A-Y. You can Google her. And she is an extraordinary person who has saved more than 15,000 girls from domestic bondage, innumerable children from abandonment and neglect. She has created nutritional clinics, orphanages. The work that this single person has done with joy and love is just amazing. So when I grow up, I want to be her. (laughs) She sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, What's your superpower? Generosity. That's a nice one. Because I have seen what it gives me. For everything I give, I get a bunch of stuff back, much more than I have given. (laughs) Um, last one, and I feel really rude asking you this, but I ask everybody, so I have to ask you too. How many fucks do you give? Depends, but I care about a lot of things, a lot, and that's why I feel young, because I'm in the struggle, I'm in the fight, I'm in, I mean, I want to hear more, know more, listen to everybody's story. I do give a fuck about a lot, about life. I want to be you when I grow up. No, you don't. You don't. You want to be Olga Mary. Check her out. <laughs> I will do. Thank you so much. Oh, do you have a dog? I have a cat. Ah, oh, I love cats. I love them. Oh, he's called Sausage. He's got no tail. <laughs> he's a complete nightmare. Good, good. Give a kiss to your cat. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us. Hold up. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.